This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. Late last year, Anthony Franz of Arnold Reporter's Appellate and Supreme Court Practice Group came on the podcast to talk about his research on friend of the court briefs at the Supreme Court. But as we enter year two of the pandemic, we thought we could all use a little bit of fun. So Anthony is back to talk with us about his other job. He's the author of three critically acclaimed novels on the often secretive world of the Supreme Court. We're lucky to have him here and he brought friends. Joseph Finder is the author of more than a dozen New York Times bestselling novels, including Guilty Minds, which is set in the world of the Supreme Court. And Brad Meltzer is the bestselling author of a dozen thrillers, including his Supreme Court novel, The Tenth Justice, um, welcome, everyone. We're thrilled to have you here. This is such a treat for me. Uh, ever since we scheduled it, I have been reading and rereading your books and calling it work, um, which <laughs> is obviously not. Um, but I want to get as we get started. I want to start with a question for you all about how you got started writing about the Supreme Court. It's probably an easy question for Anthony, who's in Arnold and Porter's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice Group, but Brad. I understand you wrote your first novel while you were still in law school. You made the New York Times bestseller list, but you also got credit for it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, my first book that I ever wrote, um, I started and it got me 24 rejection letters and there were only 20 publishers and I got 24 rejection letters, which means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. <laughs> But I remember the week after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I was working in Washington, D.C. It was the summer after my first year of law school. And I remember I, I was sitting in the back of a law school classroom daydreaming and not paying attention in the last row. And they gave us, Columbia gave us these free calendars to kind of like, again, there was no Palm Pilot back then. You had a calendar book. And I remember they, they were talking about the Supreme Court clerks. And I wrote down the words Supreme Court and clerk. And I circled it and I wrote book idea on the top. And when I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go look at these Supreme Court clerks. And I, I went down, um, I was working in DC at the time. I went down to the Supreme Court and was like, I'm going to knock on the door and they're going to let me in. And needless to say, that is not how you get into our nation's highest court. And um, I, I was working at AmeriCorps at the time, the National Service Program. So I went back to AmeriCorps. And I called the marshal's office who does security for the court. And I said, hi, we're calling from AmeriCorps. We have a couple of interns who want to go down and, and see the court. Can you give them a tour? And they said, sure. What are their names? And I said, his name is Brad Meltzer. He'll be coming alone. <laughs> and that is how I got past our nation's crack security team in, in the highest court. And the truth was, it told me nothing but that, yes, the curtains are burgundy and the justice's robes were black. And it didn't really tell me much else. And, and the truth was, as a friend of mine, um, with a job similar to Anthony's, uh, who was a former Supreme Court clerk who was working in appellate practice. And I got her on the phone. My wife knew her because uh, she worked at Hogan and Hartson. And I, I told her the plot of my book that a Supreme Court clerk inadvertently leaks a decision before it's announced to the public. And I told her how it happened. And there was this long pause in the other line. And she said, the scariest thing about your book is it could happen. And that's when I said, okay, I got a plot for a book. So that was mm -hmm. my, my kind of start to the Supreme Court. Anthony, how did, I mean, obviously you, you work with the Supreme Court as part of your, your day job, but, but how did you get started writing about the court as a novelist? 
you know, I it's it started because I, I when you practice there, you you and you work with other lawyers on lo who worked in the lower courts, uh, trial courts on uh, on cases that that you end up working on the appeal, and you start to realize like that, that a lot of a lot of people, a lot of lawyers don't really know that much about the Supreme Court or particularly the Supreme Court community, um, and you know, writers often set stories in small towns. Uh, you know, Stephen King will set his, you know, some stories in like a small main town. And it, because the, the small towns have uh, things about them that, that, that lend to, can lend to uh, storytelling. You, know, you have unique cultures, you have a confined space to set a conflict. And I, I really started to think of the Supreme Court that way as a small town, uh, you know, given the community. And it, and it has a lot of the, aspects of that. There's, you know, 400 people who work in this Roman temple kind of structure behind the Capitol building. The place has its own police force. It's got a library that's, you know, out of the Hitchcock movie. Uh, there's places to eat there. There's a basketball court on the top floor. And the, the, the court itself and the lawyers who practice in it, uh, it's an insular community and they have, you know, there's a lot of tradition. Uh, they have their own language. And so for me, it just seemed like an interesting uh, setting for, for, for stories, you know, kind of the mysterious small town in, in some ways. Yeah, Joe, you, or at least one of your characters, actually called the Supreme Court's building one of the, the Washington's most beautiful buildings. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is true. Um, my connection to the Supreme Court started, I was at a dinner in Cambridge and sat next to Steve Breyer. And okay. so we, we talked for a while and uh, my wife was talking to him and had no idea who he was. Um, and anyway, and we thought what a lovely man this, this was. And um, then we wanted to bring my daughter to Washington to sort of teach her about how the government worked. So we, I contacted Steve and he let us sit in his seats in the Supreme Court. And, good seats. Yeah, great seats. And it was super exciting. And uh, we, I started thinking at that point of a story in which you, two things would clash. You'd have the world of the Supreme Court, which is dignified and revered, uh, and remote and have that clash with the world of the internet, which is loud and cacophonic and uh, uh, full of rumors and gossip, for example. And I wanted to sort of bring the Supreme Court clashing with really a, uh, a newspaper, the, an online newspaper, a website, a gossip website. And I was sort of curious as to what, how that would work. So my, that was, so that sort of that idea kind of began to percolate. And a few years later, I wrote, started writing Guilty Minds. So Brad, actually, you touched on my next question in your answer to my first question, which is how do you balance sort of writing accurately about the court, but then making it interesting. You know, the Supreme Court is a pretty buttoned-down world. You know, we, it's a small town, as Anthony said, and, you know, what passes for excitement a lot of times at the Supreme Court is 
And when a lawyer for the federal government wears a brown suit or a justice leaves out respectfully in his or her dissent. Um, but you guys, you know, are writing thrillers. Yeah, you know, listen, this was my first published work. So I'd have a different answer for you today. Back then, I just went with what I found was interesting, which was I didn't give a crap about the justices. I didn't at all. I was so self-obsessed and so self-absorbed that I was like, there are kids that are 26 and 28 years old on that court helping draft decisions. I was completely focused on that. The idea that you have no legal experience beyond a, a quick clerkship and suddenly you're the one drafting these things. That was fascinating to me. Um, and, but to directly answer your question, the hard part is, is, is how to keep it realistic. And, um, you know, I pride myself on my research. You know, I knew obviously when I was there that there were four clerks per justice. I knew, you know, how it works. And I, I went down to like the security of the, of the pads of, you know, and I changed the security purposely so that I would, you know, make sure that you won't get it right, you know, so no one could get into the courtroom. And I knew if I put, you know, four clerks per justice and plus maybe there's a rotating fifth and then you suddenly don't have a thriller anymore. You have the Brady Bunch. There's just too many characters running around. So I was like, okay, I'm going to give you, each justice will have two clerks. And of course, like the first review that came out, we got all these really beautiful glowing reviews. And then they had a Supreme Court clerk who actually reviewed the book. And at the time she was like, Melcher knows nothing about the court, didn't even do research, doesn't realize there were fourth, you know, clerks per justice. And I'm like, okay, that's this what it's going to be. So you, you have to balance it. And I won't take that back for one second, because to me, if you do that, the reader can't follow. Um, and there's or at least too many people in my story to follow, because I was focused so much on those clerks. Um, but you try your best. And, and to me, that's where I felt like action was that, you know, there's, the book to me was never about, you barely even see the justices. The book to me was always, and it wasn't even about the court. It was about being in your 20s and living in that group house and starting your life with all your grand plans. And, we, and everyone at some point, I don't care whether you're from wealthy or you went to Ivy League or whether you're working class or where you were, we all have that moment in our 20s where we just have all those dreams and and the world just, everything seems possible. That's what the book was always about. The Supreme Court just gave me a better place to put it so that you know, people felt a, a, you know, bigger stakes. But I, what I was far more concerned with was, was these, these young people that were running around DC. It was a lot of fun actually to go back and reread it as somebody who was running around DC in, this, in that time at that age. It was because it was kind of like going back to a time capsule yeah, people you know, read like, it now. Oh my it's gosh, funny. the four ninety nine buffet at Armand's. Right, <laughs> I put I, like I put things like that that only people in DC knew, like the the, the buffet at Armand's or Two Quail, which recently closed. Yes. Um, but the funny thing was, so I used all real restaurants and all things, hoping you know back then I was like maybe they'll give me free pizza, which Armand's did. Um, <laughs> they were really nice. But the the truth was is the book is a time machine. It was written over twenty years ago. Um, and technology has changed, right? The whole book is about how fast information moves. I feel like the whole book is undone by the internet. Um, and there's even a point where the characters are, are waiting for like the photo mat to be developed, their film to come back. And my kids are like, what's a photo mat? I'm like, oh my God. Like, so <laughs> yes. I think it's perfect. Like if you're in generation X, like it is the perfect book for you still. It's a time machine of your youth, but it is definitely a time machine. It is me in my twenties, just trying to figure out my own life at the same time. But Anthony and Joe, your books are, are much more sort of 
of the moment in terms of, of having to balance the accuracy and the keeping it interesting, uh, the, the Supreme Court books that you're writing? More recent, for sure, recent. in my case, yeah. Uh, Antony, yours are, yours are of the moment, for sure. No, I, I have some blackberries, you know, in my story. Oh. You know, I, my first book came out in 2012, and I, had, I reread it recently. Uh, and because it's, it, they're releasing it in, in the UK, and I, I you know, it, there's a lot of technology that's changed even in that short period of time. But uh, you know, I, it's always a balance of trying to you know provide enough details that make the story seem authentic and accurate that you're not going to get uh, you know somebody quibbling about the number of clerks or uh, little things like that. Um, and it's but but trying to move the story forward and so i i'll fudge it i put at the end of my books some kind of uh about authenticity section to offset that and kind of note where i fudge things or things i changed uh, just to move the story along because at the end of the day we're, we're trying to entertain here people can read nonfiction books about the supreme court um and so if it if it doesn't uh move the plot forward or tell you something about the character, uh, uh, the deep, adding a bunch of details, I'll just, I'll just cut them. Yeah, I think that's one of the hardest and most important things to do is to submerge your research so no one notices it, you know? It's, research is supposed to be like a, an iceberg where you only see the tip. Uh, and I sort of felt that way. I had to do a lot more research about the Supreme Court that I was able to use and that I let show, you know, because you want, you want to focus on the narrative, the speed of the story and the characters. And I think that a lot of that research stuff just can get in the way. So you want to sort of have it, you want to sort of have it as accurate as possible within the realm of the story. Uh, and, and yet sort of not be overwhelmed with detail. Speaking of research, you know, what was the most interesting little tidbit that you found? You know, I've been blogging about or covering the court for almost 20 years, and I feel like every year I find something new. I was surprised that the associate justices don't have any security. Says the guy who murders people all day long. <laughs> As we all do, yeah. we writers, yes. Um, that was the, that was the first thing that occurred to me. You know, I, to jump in, I, I, I did a lot of little things that I learned, you know, uh, along the way. I just, um, the customs, some of the customs I've, I've always found kind of interesting that, you know, the, you're, you're a Supreme Court justice, you're in the highest court in the land, but if you're the most junior justice during the conference, you've got to be the note taker and answer the door if somebody knocks. Um, and there's other little traditions like that. And, uh, you know, the building itself has a lot of interesting things about it. If you, if you look around, there's little animals built into the architecture. There's, you know, owls that are supposed to represent wisdom. And there's, uh, there's turtles in different places that are supposed to represent the deliberative pace of the law. Um, so you can kind of, there's, there's all kinds of little things over, over time that, that you know, I tried to just weave in uh, here and there in the books because uh, it's, it's, it's pretty, 
particularly the, the things that, you know, there are things in Brad's book, which I read before my most recent book came out because they both involved law court protagonists. And there's things Brad talked about in the traditions of the court that, you know, are applied equally to, uh, you know, what, what was happening when I wrote it. Yeah, I think for me, um, I, and again, it's 20 years ago, so forgive me what I've imagined and what I think is reality, but I'm pretty sure that the, the one of the things you find out is uh, you see kind of the clerks sign their names on the inside of a, of a filing cabinet. And I'm pretty sure someone gave me that. And that's what I loved. I love the little details of like, you know, if you're going to work in the Supreme Court and you're given, you know, your time there, you're going to, you want to put, you want to write your name like it's your bunk at camp. Like, I love that. I love that even there, I don't care how smarty you are, like they still want to put their name down. I also, I actually was just all, I love the fact that the justices seemed to kind of like when they took notice, like they invite, cause I was, a, you know, I was a kid when that book came out, I was 27 years old and they invited me to come speak at the court. And, you know, at that point, I, I'm sure they've done plenty of them since, but at least they told us, or maybe they just were making us feel good that we were the first fiction writers to ever speak, uh, and, and I, they sat us like up on the court thing and they were like, and I was like, this is a big deal. And so the justices were coming down and I got to meet everyone. Like that was actually interesting that they kind of cared about the fictional versions of themselves, even though of course none of us were writing them, but that, 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 that was fun to them to see their work realized in fiction. That was a cool day. They tellingly have never invited me. <laughs> <laughs> They've never invited me back. So I don't know what that me. tells you also. <laughs> Have you heard though? Have you, you know, have you gotten any other feedback from the justices about your work about the court? You know, I've been lucky enough. I, I ran into this was back when when Sandra Day O'Connor was on the court, and I think it was, I think Breyer was with her. We actually wound up speaking at an event together, so I got to go up and introduce myself. But the one justice who I knew for many years was uh, Justice Ginsburg, because her daughter was my teacher uh, in law school, and and we. She was just really, you know, she was, she had just been nominated right as I was graduating. In fact, one of my dearest friends was one of her most loved and beloved clerks, a woman who passed away named Rochelle Shorts. Um, and Justice Ginsburg and I were both witnesses at her wedding. Um, and so I'd see her at stuff. But the funniest thing was, is I didn't know her at this point, but I invited, I was, again, I was 27 and we were having a book party. And I didn't know if I was ever going to write another book again, or they were going to give us ever have a party again. So I was like, I'm taking every advantage. And I invited like everyone to the Supreme, the 10th Justice Book Party. If you were in your 20s in DC at the time, you some one of your friends was at this party. And I invited all the justices to the Supreme Court. Now, I didn't think anyone would come, but I was like, we're doing it. We might as well send it to them. And of course, none of them came, but my phone rang and it lit up and I could see it was the Supreme Court. I knew the, the, you know, the number and uh, the prefix. And I picked it up and they said, it's Justice Ginsburg wants to speak to you. And I, I was like, uh-oh. And I, I said, hello. And she has this, you know, she's, she always speaks in that, she's spoken that super measured, I just call myself doing present tense, that's weird, um, in a super measured way. And she's like, I'm sorry, Brad. I just wanted to let you know, I, I won't be able to make your party. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> like, I, it's okay that you're going to miss the party. Like I was like, I didn't think you were really going to come, but it, I just love that she took that enough to, to call. So that was, that was the fun for me. And um, I would never dare ask you never as a writer, at least me, if you ask someone, how's the book, it's a loaded question. So I remember going on, on a plane once and, and seeing someone read the book for the first time. 
And, and I immediately, I went, what do you think? And they were like, and I was like, oh crap. As soon as I said <laughs> it, I was like, this is a bad question. And, and I sat behind them and diagonally behind them in the, in the air, airplane. I was in the middle seat and they were on the, on the aisle. And I was so excited. They were reading my words and this was the 10th justice. And, and 10 minutes into the flight, they were dead asleep. <laughs> so I knew you never, ever ask anyone what they think of your book. <laughs> So we talked a little bit about sort of, you know, accuracy and keeping it interesting. Um, the flip side of that is what I think of as the Veep problem. You know, the showrunner for the HBO comedy said once the Trump administration came along, it was like almost impossible to do satire about politics. And, you know, even with the Supreme Court, you know, you there were conspiracy theories, there were baseless conspiracy theories, but conspiracy theories about, you know, Justice Ginsburg long before she passed away, that, you know, she'd actually died and there was a body double. Um, you know, would it be harder to write thrillers about the Supreme Court or about the government right now? Joe, you've actually written for the Washington Post yeah. uh, kind of about this same topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the thing about the Supreme Court to me, is that it feels like a secret society. It sort of feels like it is so closed and so remote and so little known about uh, in the, among the basic you know, the populace that it makes it all the more exciting. Uh, and I mean, you know, Brad, you've also written books about secret societies and that sort of thing. And there is something I think appealing about that. Uh, and, and fascinating. And I fear that if we know too much about the Supreme Court, if we have video cameras there, whatever, it'll lose that mystique that comes from being in that Greco-Roman temple, remote and cut off from the world in so many ways. I'll say, Amy, um, I wrote my books before the, you know, turbulent last few years. So I don't know if it would be harder now, but I will say I used to get an occasional email from, you know, a reader who said, would say something like, you know, you wrote this, that's so unbelievable, that would never happen, that's unbelievable. Um, and I don't get those emails anymore. So maybe that's just something about it. Yeah, I think that's well said, Anthony. I mean, this is Brad, I, I, I just would say, the one, I, I think Joe is right. I mean, my, my, the reason I loved it is because no one knew about it. It just seemed like the secret clubhouse, uh, you know, the, with the complete with secret handshake, right? The whole thing. But the one thing that I do believe is it's very hard to compete with reality. Dave Mandela's, I think who you were quoting from Veep is a friend of mine. And, and we know like, it's really, really difficult to compete with reality because reality will always win. Um, I remember when I was, the book that I wrote uh, two after I wrote the 10th justice, I, I wanted to write about the white house. I was like, you know, I really want to jump into the white house. and and I had my, all my appointments set up and everything was set up and all these people to meet with at the White House. And, and it was the week a little scandal called Monica Lewinsky broke. And every door slammed in my face. No one wanted to meet. No one would talk to anyone. Everything shut down. And the Washington Post ran this big story that said only a fool would be writing a Supreme, uh, White House thriller today. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm that fool. And it took me two years to write the book. And I, I went and did my two years. And because I just was like, I still like it. I mean, eventually things opened and I, no reporters were allowed in, but I was actually going into the White House at the time because they were like, oh, you're the fiction writer. You can come in, you're okay. 
because what's what am I going to do? Like I'm not Bob Woodward. Um, and then the truth was is I couldn't compete with reality there. But as two years went by, this little show I remember the the month that month before uh, the next book that was called The First Council came out. This tiny show came on the air called The West Wing. And suddenly everyone wanted, cared about the White House again. And I was the dummy in the right place at the right time that happened to have the White House book. And, it, and, and the thing is, is when it goes against you, it slaughters you. Like if I was writing a White House book right now during Trump's term, I, I, that was the last thing I would really want to write about because it was so crazy on a daily basis there. And it was, you couldn't make it up. If I said to my editor, you know, I got a reality show star and he's got, you know, this is what he's doing and he becomes the president. You're like, what? That can't, that would never happen. She'd never let me make that happen. Um, so I would never compete with that, but, but eventually people will want that again because, you know, everything, as we know, goes around and once it gets calm again and everyone takes their eye off it, it becomes intriguing again. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the Supreme Court is certainly right now, it seems the cases it's choosing, trying to do its best to fade into obscurity. So who knows what that will mean. I think the hard part about writing about the Supreme Court though also is, it, you know, it's a level of nuance that isn't, that doesn't give you that meat and potato satisfaction that a law and order case does, right? Here's the murderer. Here's who did it. You can get the answer and, and there it is. You know, you're talking about like nuanced appellate decisions that are, you know, I remember trying to pick out cases that I could explain to readers on property, you know, because every case can't be a business makes money or doesn't make money. They had to be, you know, I was like, okay, what, what are the nuances of civil procedure can I use that hasn't been decided? Or what's a nuance on first, like, and they're, they just don't give you that initial satisfaction where you see someone in the courtroom go like, oh, I'm saved and someone else going curses. Um, you know, it's, it's just not like that. And so I think it's, I think you have to, you have to kind of choose wisely. Um, and I do think it's also harder to get in. I think, I think the fact that it's so close to so many people, I mean, I'm, I spent years, Chris Vassell was a dear friend of mine. He was one of my favorite oh, people Vassell. there who I still stay in touch with. And Chris was, you know, my, my eyes and ears in the court. I remember when I wrote the book, I was on my final, final edit, the final edit. And I called up Chris, the final edit came from the editor and it said on the opening scene of the 10th justice, Ben Addison walks up the 44 steps of the Supreme court, which I counted myself. And then he gets to the front doors. He started his first day on the job as a clerk. And then it says he gets to the front door. And the question is, I said to Chris, does the door push or does the door pull? And he said, I'll call you right back. And I had the advantage of Chris and I were friendly and he knew someone I knew. And so he could help me navigate that universe in such a kind way with never, ever revealing any, you know, just public affairs stuff. But, um, but it's hard. That's hard to figure out, you know, how, how it really does work beyond, you know, here's an appellate case and here's how it comes down. So one of the topics that I cover as a journalist and, you know, other journalists and lawyers have covered is the dearth of female lawyers arguing at the Supreme Court. Um, why do you think there aren't female novelists writing about the Supreme Court? There, you know, I think there are. Are there? Okay. I'm thinking, I'm just trying to think of... Um, Margaret Truman wrote the uh, kind of... Yeah, uh, Margaret Truman did write one of the first. Um, and also I was thinking of Allison... Um, Leota? Who'd you say? Leota. Leota, thank you. Didn't she write, did she write about the Supreme Court? She wrote about the Supreme Court. She writes legal thrillers. Right, right. I, I'm, I, know, I didn't know if one of her books was there too. Um, Excellent. Good que- to but it's wrong. a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. Why is that, right? Why is that? Well, also, why are there not more women writing suspense novels? 
for example. Yes. I didn't know. Wait, can you just go back a second, Amy? Like, so there, you're saying that you don't see a lot of women arguing before the court either? No, no. It's been uh, fairly well documented. It, you know, oh, that's terrible. When you compare it to, you know, really any measure, either like the number of women graduating from law school, the number of women, even when, you know, compared to the number of women who clerk at the court, it's, it's really low. And I remember seeing you, the number, I remember seeing the number, I thought they graduated in high numbers, but they just left the law quicker than that. That was a stat. I mean, I saw the law firm numbers and they were, they were horrible. Yeah. I, no, I mean, and once you take out sort of the number of women who are, you know, the, the U.S. Solicitor General tends to have, a, you know, tends to hire female lawyers who then are arguing before the court. And if you take those out, then it really- I was gonna say, my friends who argue before the court work for the Solicitor General. Starts, it starts to be fairly abysmal. There was one year, it's been a couple of years, fortunately, but there was one year where it was, I think February, before there was a woman who was a you know, lawyer in private practice arguing. It was, it was probably Lisa Blatt uh, who, who then argued, but you know, it's, it's not good. I mean, listen, I know Justice Ginsburg cared a great deal, of course, as we all know. It's, uh, you know, about making sure her clerks were high in those numbers. Um, and I, you know, I knew people who were, but uh, yeah, that's, that's disheartening to me. So you all are, are friends, um, you know, you obviously outside of the podcast, you know each other quite well. So do you, you know, keep in touch or do you support each other as some sort of secret no way. Thriller. We don't support Thriller. each other. No. <laughs> no, I love these guys. Let me tell you something. Joe yeah. Fender was one of like, and you know, it's funny. I feel like I'm between these two people, right? Like Joe, I'm, I remember meeting him being like, oh my gosh. I'm, I think Joe, I think the movie was coming out when I first met you. High um, crimes. Yes. And, and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and Anthony, I met after the book was published. Um, but the, the, the thriller community is, is, I mean, it's like the Supreme Court community. It, it seems like it's so imposing, but it's really so small. Yep. And I think when you have that group, first of all, we're all people who sit at home all day long, right? I mean, Anthony has a real job. We're all Joe, those people Joe, these days. Right, Joe, right. I mean, everyone's, everyone has the writer's life now. Um, but, you know, Anthony has a real job too. But, but Joe and I, you know, talk to imaginary people all day. And, and in a strange way is, you know, Anthony, I think, you know, we obviously had, we, I, we had a mutual connection through my wife and other things, but we had a couple ways to, toward each other. But anyone who, you know, in this community who kind of makes their way to it, you, you, whether it's a thriller fest or other places, we just kind of find each other. And, and I think any group gathering of, of writers becomes like group therapy because we have no one else to bitch and moan to. Yeah. I think and the writers that, that I've met, thriller writers, mystery writers, are really supportive of, of, of other writers, in fact. They're, they're, you know, some of my favorite people. They're really terrific. So, yeah. Joe, talk. Oh, go ahead, Anthony. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I was going to just add, like, that, you know, I came to this late in the game uh, compared to uh, Joe and Brad, but I'll say that, you know, one of the joys of, of doing this uh, has been, after spending so many years as the lawyer community being my kind of outside and inside work friends, is getting to be part of the thriller community and, and, you know, early on, both uh, uh, Joe and Brad didn't know me from really anybody. Went out, Joe wrote my book. Brad has, has helped me in several ways before they, you know, we even got to know each other. And it just it is a real great thing about the thriller community. I think it's a hard road to get published, and once you do, uh, you really there's a real camaraderie and and and, uh, and willingness to just help people out and try and support each other. 
So yeah. I wanted to follow up on that. So I guess, you know, it is hard to get published. There are fewer major publishers these days. How, you know, how do you get published? Could you talk a little bit about sort of how you, how you all got started? Well, that's, that's a tough question in a lot of ways. I mean, um, I think how you get published is you have to, first you have to get an agent and that's harder than getting a publisher. Uh, and you have to actually write the book. No one wants to hear from you if you have just an idea for a book or a proposal or something like that. You have to actually go through and write the whole thing. And then, and you know, if it's your first book, it, it's gonna need work. They all do. And uh, well, all my books need work, but you know, when you're, if it's your first one, you're sending around a first draft in a lot of ways. And, um, and, I, and I think also there are, what is it, four major publishers now? Four, Brad, was it four or five? Yeah, shrink, shrinking by the day, yeah. Yeah, shrinking by the day. And that's, that's really bad for auctions, for example. They don't, they, the, within Penguin Random House, they're not, not allowed to compete with each other. Uh, it's tough. So it's, it has gotten harder to get published, I think. But the flip side is it's easier to publish yourself because of, because of Amazon and Kindle, it's very easy to publish, to get published if you publish yourself. Yeah, I do think that when, it, you know, Joe, of course, said it best. I mean, the, the key thing is um, as things shrink, it's just, there's just less options. And that's what he means by being so few publishers. When I went out, I got 24 rejection letters. And as I told you, that means there were 24 people to read the book, right? Or at least 20 of them. Um, that could read the book and, and sound off. And now you're sending it, you know, to the big ones about five. And if you're going to do it yourself, you can do it yourself. But it's, you know, when I got started and the 10th Justice came out, they put that book down next to Joe Fender's book and next to John Grisham's book. And obviously they were going to both outsell me starting out, you know, like I was uh, you know, just starting my, my trying to be out there. But you bought a book, you went into Borders, you went into politics and prose, you went into, you know, wherever you were going into. Um, and you'd browse and you'd see 50 to 100 books just walking around the store. And then at 50, you know, you'd look at a cover and go like, huh, look at that. I'll take a look at that. And now, you know, the truth is because we all buy, so many people buy, I should say, with one click on their computer, they're only seeing three books. You know, if you go on, on an online store, you're only seeing three. So it's just much harder for a new person to break in. And, and you'll see it, you know, you'll see that book that just takes off, but they tend to be the books that just sell, a, you know, you say, I feel like there's a, you sell very few or you sell a million copies now, right? Like the, the books that break through by a first time author are those ones that are mega giant hits, like a girl with the dragon tattoo or like, you know, those big monster books that everyone reads that year. Um, and it's kind of feast or famine. And, and that's not a good thing because what we want is a diversity of voices. Back to your point, um, you know, Amy, about writing about the court. I'd love to see women write about the court. I'd love to see, you know, all these different voices about it, but we just don't see it because the options are not there. And, and sadly, it, you know, I'm sure the attempts are there, but we're just not seeing the results. Right. Last question, and then we'll, we'll let you go. Um, what are you working on these days? Do you have any, any Supreme Court related books in the future? I, I don't. I'm, I'm finishing a book right now. I'm just really about two days away from finishing it, I think. Oh, congratulations. Thank and um, I've, I've written about, I've written books in which the Supreme Court is figured, figures one way or the other. 
I mentioned Adam Liptak, for example, in, in Guilty yes. Minds, you know, um, and uh, so I'm, I probably, I don't know if I'll write about the Supreme Court again. Sure. If, I, if I have a great idea, sure. Uh, it's, it remains tantalizing to me. Yeah, uh, Anthony, I, I, am, I think I've run my course with Supreme Court books. I don't, I don't know if there's anything, a tidbit I can learn or any other story idea I can come up with uh, that, I, that I'm packing up about to, to write more about it. So I'm moving to this commercial uh, uh, fiction uh, outside of the legal thriller uh, realm and, and trying to just broaden, broaden my readership and, and you know, try something different. Uh, I will say you caught me on publication day. Uh, uh, you know, I, well, I, to answer your question first, I don't have anything in the thriller avenue um, for the Supreme Court. I tend to write about um, Dover Air Force Base and, um, and, and this kind of amazingly secretive mortuary um, where the government buries its spies and other people. And I've been writing about that. And I'm just about, I just finished a draft of the second book of The Escape Artist. Um, to follow up to that. So that's the next book that's coming out. And I really love that world. It's not a, it's not a, a it's just not that Washington DC where it's like, it's like DC adjacent, right? I mean, I feel like right. I've spent so long kind of growing up in DC, but I think as many people who live in DC, you eventually hit a point where you're like, do I love DC as much as I love DC when I was in my twenties? And you either do, you don't. And, and I think I'm mm -hmm. kind of hitting that point where I'm, you know, figuring that out. Um, but I also write a lot of kids books now. And so we launched an entire line of kids books with, I'm, it's called the ordinary people change the world series. We did, I am Amelia Earhart and I am Abraham Lincoln and I am Rosa Parks. We did, I am Sonia Sotomayor. So that was my Supreme court work is we got to do a book on her, which was really, really fun to work on. And, um, and you know, I did get some other help from, from people there on it, which was really nice. And that was my last touch to the Supreme Court. Of course, everyone asked us if we're doing uh, Justice Ginsburg, and you better believe I want to do Justice Ginsburg's, uh, you know, write one of her biographies as well for the kids series. And then the newest book is called The New... So the newest one that came out today is called The New Day. It's a, it's a picture book about what happens if Sunday quits and the other days of the week have to have tryouts for a new day. And then the newest I Am book is I Am Frida Kahlo. So that's the newest one that comes out in a couple of days. So those are my new ones. And, uh, but so I am Sonia Sotomayor is a really, really fun book. And I love the fact that people bring so many copies of that to Justice Sotomayor's events and then send me pictures of her like signing this book that she's like, I didn't write it, but here you go. And that always <laughs> makes me laugh. And all these people send these pictures that are like, it just makes me laugh every time. Well, congratulations on, on the books. Um, and thanks so much to all three of you, Joe Fender, Anthony Franz, and Brad Meltzer for taking time out of your schedules to talk to us. We really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. This thanks was so, so much fun. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to our sponsor, Case Text. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, Cal Goldie, and James Ramos.